A really big mistake that they make, sometimes entrepreneurs, when they're not doing well, shut down and don't communicate. And I think that is the number one mistake I see because that's when you should be communicating and be asking for help. Founding a company might be a solo mission, but running a company isn't. Successful founders know they need help to thrive. And good help goes beyond employees. It extends all the way to company leadership. Here's the thing. Leadership doesn't mean the founder stands alone in a vacuum. A strong leaders need a strong advisory board. There is a misconception out there that you need to be successful first in finding investors before you can have credible people to sit on your company's advisory board. In last week's episode, as part of this podcast series all about leveling up your skills as CEO and founder, Bryn Sullivan, Kat Dahan, Sarah Feingolds share about the benefit of having a strong board advisory to grow your skills and your company. That's one of the missions of their company, the fourth floor. They want founders to understand that having a strong advisory board early on in the journey can attract venture capital to invest in your business. And they also want to put more women in board positions. You don't want to miss this conversation. Head on over to christinashahli.com forward slash her CEO journey and subscribe to your favorite podcast app. Having a CFO as part of your advisory board is an advantage for your business growth because a CFO can ensure that you transform your social impact mission into financial freedom that fuels your life. If you lack the financial expertise needed to confidently scale your social impact business, Let's chat on how a CFO expertise can add value to your advisory board. You can connect with me using the link provided in the show notes. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business. During my conversation with Judy Robinette in episode 78, who is a startup expert and author of Crack the Funding Code, Judy mentioned that one source of funding available to startup is family offices. This key point led me to invite my next guest, Marcia Nelson, a family office professional, board member, and advisor who is also passionate about impact investment. She has years of experience working with family offices across the United States. Let's find out Marcia CEO journey. Marcia Nelson, welcome to her CEO journey. 
you've been introduced to me. I mean, with such a great connector, Christine Chang, CEO of the Sixth Avenue Capital. Shout out to you! You're awesome. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> so I we've known you- each other for ten years. Really? We, we are, yeah, yeah. Christine and I have, are like have a love fest with each other. So, can you explain your journey to my audience, please? I have a very eclectic journey. So, I started my career as a high school English teacher. I didn't know very many women who worked outside of the home. I didn't know any women who worked in an office. I had really no idea what types of careers were even open to women, right? And certainly open to me. I didn't want to teach anymore. And I went to one of those little temp agencies where they make you take the type test and that kind of thing. Oh, man. (laughs) You know what they're talking about, right? And I got it. I got an interview at a a women's fashion magazine, a magazine called YM Magazine. It doesn't exist anymore. But I got a job as the executive assistant to the editor-in-chief of the magazine. And the the funny thing was I was in the interview and they said, you know, like, look, this is a high-powered job. This, like, it could be really difficult. It could be hard to work with her. And my response was, any harder than having 30 hormonal adolescents in a classroom? And they were like, you're hired. Right there. Like, <laughs> you know, so, so part of my story is like telling people, look, like every experience you gain along the way can help you in some, at something else. So don't apologize for anything that you did before and, and use it and leverage it to help you get to where you need to be. So I lived it, like I worked for her for a couple of years and then I actually ended up at Mademoiselle Magazine for the CEO I mean, the editor-in-chief of Mademoiselle. So I lived I lived the whole Devil Wears Prada life for about 10 years. What? And it was amazing. I was a, a, you know, my husband and I had moved from Utah to New York. And we were in this like fashionista world and the, the Condé Nasty girls and the little black dress and Madison Avenue and fashion. And it was so new to me. And I learned so much and it was so exciting but then dot com came along and magazines started to to fold and i got i did, i interviewed for a what is now you would say a family office but a billionaire philanthropist she was building out a whole team of different people to you know she had different different interests and she was looking for an executive assistant and she had like three different assistants and all all sorts of people who worked with her but her philanthropy get this was focused on education. Wow. So the fact that I had been a teacher and had this 10 years in the executive assistant made me a shoe-in for working for her. So it was amazing. It was the first time really working for a, a billionaire, working for a philanthropist, seeing everything about her personal life and even the struggles, you know, like money doesn't buy everything, but also everybody wants access. So I came home one day and I said to my husband, I think I need to go to graduate school and get an MBA. I actually had a mentor, another woman, and she was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. And she had her children. She had been a teacher. She had gone back to school. I had just had lunch with her one day and I said, I really need some advice. I said, you know, is this possible? And she said, absolutely. And then I got recruited to what is essentially my second family office, which was a business manager firm specializing in athletes and entertainers. And that was really great because I kind of shifted my focus in grad school. So I did finance courses and then I did tax courses. So really personal financial planning was kind of where I was headed with that. I love the family offices and part of the impact community is really supportive of women and minorities. So let's talk a little bit about family office. (laughs) 
What is family office? So family offices are essentially private investors and family offices have been around for for multiple generations. But it's been like since 2008, they've really become an, an investment force. And generally a family office, and it can be, as people say, single family offices, multifamily offices. There are large organizations like Rockefeller, Rockefeller Investments started as a family office for the Rockefeller family. And it was a way to sort of like pool their resources, pool their interests. Some of these organizations started because the family had some interest in, in philanthropy and art, but then they had, you know, 16 children and some trusts and and things were kind of a mess. And so by creating an infrastructure, they can bring everything together and have legal and accounting and investments and philanthropy all under one umbrella. So the big, large family offices started out like that. Where I spend my time are with family offices that are generally, most of them are second and third generation wealth inheritors. Or they are, some of them are, are first-generation wealth creators, but maybe they, they, they started a business and ran it, and 30 years later, they sold it, and now they're sitting on some capital. They're sitting on anywhere from $10 million to some of them have billions of dollars if they, you know, if they had a large company and it was multi-generational. What do you do with that money? You know, maybe you have an expertise in aerospace and defense because that was what you built. Or maybe you have expertise in consumer products because that was a company that you ran. So a lot of these families are saying, look, like I'm 50 and I'm not ready to retire and I have more runway and I would really like to find other, other opportunities to invest. And so family offices are really a driver. These private investors are really a driver for investing in. They feel like they have something to give to these companies. So they will pool their assets and, and invest in the company together. And then collectively, they can actually help the company grow. We will bring families together to collectively to invest, invest in, in, in a company that we've identified, we've done the due diligence, and we have found you know, opportunities that we think are good, that we think that we should invest in that are going to give us some you know, impact. We, we say impactful. Not everything we do has an impact overlay, but impact and, and a re- impactful return as well as a financial return. Even though you're saying not everything is social impact. But before we even get into that, what is social impact investing in your definition? I look at it as investing with a purpose. And there are a lot of different categories and sectors around that. And and, and the best place to look for, if anybody's interested in knowing more, looking at the United Nations developed the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. They're called the SDGs. Those are a good overview of impact areas. And so if you think about like underserved communities or populations, so women, girls, minorities, people who live in poverty, as well as, you know, environmental, like clean water, clean energy, those are kind of the areas where people focus. And even in like, even if you're thinking about like underserved populations, what do they need? They need access to clean water. They need access to healthcare. They need access to education. Those are different areas that people look at in terms of social impact investing. But now, how do you match between the investee and the investor? What is your process in terms or of like matching the two to make sure the value aligns? Well, I think that it really, really starts with building relationships. So, so I spend a lot of time 
getting to know potential investors and talking with them on a regular basis, whether it's doing things like these podcasts or interviewing them. Like I sit on a lot of panels and interview a lot of people on panels. I spend a lot of time at conferences. You know, now it's all virtual, but I was spending a lot of time traveling to conferences and meeting other families. But you have to find out what they're looking for. What's the potential investors? What's their risk appetite? And what stage of investment are they looking to to write a check? So do you believe like there is a rise in terms of social impact investing over the last few years? Oh, absolutely. And some of it has come out of like the ESG strategies, environmental social governments. Think of it as a continuum. So there's, you can really get your like, quote unquote, get your hands dirty by doing an angel investing investment in an early stage company that is providing clean water or generators to sub-Saharan Africa, right? Like, I mean, that's like a, that's a real deep social impact investment. On the other end of the continuum, you can sit down with your financial advisor and your wealth manager and, you're, you know, looking at your bank statements and your mutual fund. And you can say, I don't want to invest in tobacco, guns, like whatever issues, you know, you can do like the elimination strategy and you can just say, I don't want to invest in that, but I really want to invest in companies that support women and have women on boards. And I think ESG, you know, environmental social governments, we can all personally help change, you know, help create change by saying, I'm not going to invest in you until you make this happen, that you have more minorities, mm-hmm. that you have more women at VP level and above. You know, those are things that those are things that we can actually do, even if it's with a $10 investment. I think someone put it in a simple way to me about, you know, impactful investing. Like, how do you want to live your life? Right. If let's yeah. say that you wanna you don't like plastic waste and then yeah. you don't wanna spend money when somebody is doing like plastic wrap for their packaging or something like that. Like, I mean, it's consciously, if if you look at the way you live and how you want to live your life and how you want to live legacy for your kids, teaching your kids, I think you can start investing in that regard. Like, you know, start buying, start buying stuff from a company that is not using plastic wrap, that is care more about the environment. Yes. I want to talk more on the investing side now. What type of benchmark to measure the impact? We know how to measure the profit. Just look at the profit and loss, right? And look at the cash flow. But what about the impact side? So there's a metric system called IRIS, I-R-I-S, the IRIS metrics. They actually have well over 2,000, it might be 2,600 different types of measurements for social and environmental impact. Obviously, we don't expect a company to to measure all of those. We generally ask the companies to do an annual reporting on three to five benchmarks that we against the IRIS metrics. So we will work with the company and say, to decide what we think what they think their benchmarks are, where they think they're providing a social impact, and we will help them. On the financial side, we generally want to see quarterly, but it's it's really hard to do that on the measuring impact side. And so we require it annually. We also don't want the companies to be spending, these entrepreneurs to be spending all of their time figuring out the metrics. We want them to be building the business, right? But there does have to be some expectation that they are meeting their, their social impact goals. And that's why we invested in them. 
Can you give some example on the benchmark that you use in one of your investi? We were working with a company that is a carbon neutral, and we are able to measure the output is a you know of light bulbs and electricity and using cleaner cleaner light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So you can actually figure out how much electricity is saved. And the company has been able to do that for us and, you know, give us an annual measurement of we saved X number of gallons of water. We mm-hmm. saved X number of kilowatts of electricity. Those are pretty, you know, there, there are some that are easier than others to measure. The human ones are a little bit harder, you know, but you can say we, you know, if you're investing in something that eliminates sex trafficking, you can say we rescued X number of young women sex trafficking this year, right? I mean, like, so, so you, there really are ways to figure out what, you know, again, you have to decide in advance what you're going to measure, how you're going to measure it. Have you seen any common mistake in terms of in the social impact space during the due diligence process? I think one of the mistakes people make is not getting the right capital. There's definitely capital out there. But in terms of finding the right investor, especially like either, you know, even if it's a debt or, you know, private debt or private equity, you really want somebody, and especially if you're early stage, you don't want somebody to just write a check. You want somebody who can help you almost be like an outsourced brand ambassador and help you bring clients to your business or somebody who can maybe step in because maybe you're too small to have a CFO, but maybe there's somebody on your board who's an investor who can help you with some of your finances. You know, like those like for early stage companies and even in the social impact space, finding the right investor who, who can also help find other investors is so important. And I think that's one of the things, and, and I put it that this in your d- due diligence question, because I think it comes back to what you said earlier about aligning yourself. And so it's even more important that you are aligning yourself with investors that share your values, who understand that, that you have that you have similar expectations. You know, and I think that's part of the due diligence, not just the financial due diligence. Like, are we aligned? That you know, so so, and you also want to make sure that your investors don't get excited about the next new shiny penny and abandon you. Now, given the situation that we are in right now, which is crazy with this pandemic, what have you seen from the investee, like the company that you you guys are investing in? Have they been communicating with you? I know you invest in the late B series or C series, right? So they are probably more mature and I'm assuming maybe the risk is a little bit less than a startup, right? It's lower risk. It depends. Like some of the sectors, you know, like we have invested in some hotels and those have had a harder time right now, right? Here's here's some really good advice for entrepreneurs and a really big mistake that they make. Sometimes entrepreneurs, when they're not doing well, shut down and don't communicate. And I think that is the number one mistake I see because that's when you should be communicating and be asking for help. And so if you're reaching out, you're an entrepreneur, you're running your business, pandemic hits, reaching out to your board and saying, hey, can somebody help us with the PPPs, you know, like, like the CARES Act. It is really, really important, especially in times like this, that the entrepreneur is communicating with the board and really communicating or 
with your investors and say, this is, this is where we are. And also like to your home, like this is how we're dealing with this. Because then when we come out of this pandemic and you, and you might need more capital, you know, as, as investors, like I, I, if I'm looking at company A and company B and company A communicated, you know, maybe they struggled, but they came out of it. Like we invest in the management team, right? Like we know that there's going to be problems. They're going to have to struggle. How they communicated during a crisis is going to inform how we invest in them in the future. And if they've gone radio silent and they're not responding to our calls and they're not, they're not giving us quarterly reports and they're not talking to us, we are less likely to support them going forward with additional capital and other resources. Do you think it's fear that they're not going to get help? Or is it because they don't have a story to tell the investor? If they haven't built a relationship with their investors already, they're going to be less likely to reach out to their investors and, and ask for help. And I think that comes back to building that relationship, getting the right investors, knowing what your communication strategy is going to be, and then leveraging your investors to be helpful to you. But if you don't have a relationship with them already, it's going to be hard to do. How important is it when you are doing the due diligence for them to provide you with a financial projection? Absolutely. We absolutely expect a financial projection. Can the management team deal with the hiccup? What will they do when something goes wrong? We didn't know there was going to be a pandemic, but we did know that like along the way, there were going to be, you know, a recession. Yes, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. This is interesting point though that you made. And I dealt with so many lenders and so many investors in my corporate career. Yeah. (laughs) So... Personally, I know that from the investing side, from the company side, we always want to give a positive picture. But (laughs) from dealing with a lot of them, I also realized that if you give too much of this rosy picture, it's not to your benefit. Yes, I agree. I think the right picture is to give a reasonable assumption. like. As a finance person, I think the best assumption is what we have right now. Providing more on the scenario planning, like if A happened, this is what action we're going to take. If B happened, this are the action that we're going to take. So I think when you're providing like some kind of scenario planning based on your assumption, what type of uncertainty is going to happen in the future, it's probably going to give you more comfort because you then you can assess Do I want to invest in this company? Do I want to add more capital? I think that's a really good idea. Here's our rosiest. Here's our our reasonable. Here's our worst case scenario. And I think having those conversations and just saying like, we recognize this is really, really important. And and it should be part of the due diligence. I want to understand a little bit more because you are dealing from the investor side. One of the biggest concerns from founders with equity financing is losing control over their mm-hmm. vision. So based on your experience, should that be a concern? I think it's definitely something that they should cons- you should absolutely consider. But having said that, you should consider it, be aware of it. But there are many, many different ways to put government and structures in place to maintain the right balance for you. I would highly recommend seeking non-equity investments. So you're not giving away your equity. So that could be grants. 
It could be loans, even, even like maybe even convertible notes, you know, like things that like, if you hit a milestone, then, that, that, then it converts to equity and then also even strategic partnerships. So you can get, you know, if you can, if you can find a strategic partner, I've advised a couple of companies where the manufacturer has actually invested money into the company, right? Because it's good for the manufacturer. The manufacturer has given a loan or the manufacturer has, has given them some non-dilutive capital, it, which balances out the equity. So it should definitely be a concern. And it comes back to also to that due diligence. Like, are you aligning with the right investor? If you're writing with a, aligning with the right investor, then it doesn't like, then maybe you're less concerned. But also, you know, you know, do you want to give away 51% of your company? Do the founders really want to dilute themselves? There are lots of ways to work around that. So be conscious of it, be aware of it, get good advice, like re- like talk to your attorney, your accountant. You know, if you're if you're using a business broker, like talk to them and help them, you know, work with them to help you structure so that you can find ways to maintain control and maintain your vision. Do you believe like startup should seek for non-dilutive financing first? Though with the non-dilutive financing, and then when an investor comes in, and then what I know one of the things that investor will be looking at is the leverage ratio. If your debt ratio or your leverage ratio is quite high, isn't that going to deter the the investor to invest any equity financing? Yes, I, I do think that can be an issue because because I don't want to put equity in the company and know that you're using my equity to pay down the debt, right? Like I want to make sure that like. Do you have enough money coming in from sales to cover your debt ratio, right? To cover your debt expense? That's absolutely, absolutely important. I mean, that's definitely something that you want to look at. But the other thing is, the other thing is we look at companies and I say, okay, how is the company managing its cash flow? So maybe they took series A of $10 million three years ago, and then they got some non maybe they got some grant money, they got it so that so that that equity investment and even this little debt along the way helped them grow the company. So now it's two or three years later before they're coming out for more equity, as opposed to somebody who's like every six months they're raising new equity. And as an equity investor, I'm gonna get diluted. Like I'm not happy about that. But I also like, you know, I, I'm gonna add add something to this too. Like I look at how a company, where their investment capital is going. So did they just you know, get new office space and buy really expensive furniture, right? I don't want to write a check so that they can get new furniture, right? I want to write a check so that they can, you know, grow their customer base and so that they're going to be more profitable as a company. So, so you have the like non-diluted capital, but you also have like, where's the capital going? Like where's yes, the money going? Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, you don't use the money to pay the CEO's salary, like a million dollars or something. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Because, you know, investor wants to see the company grow. It doesn't mean that you cannot pay yourself as the CEO a decent salary. But I think going back to that cash flow management, the business should be able to generate enough money to pay payroll. In my opinion. And then you should use the money that you receive from the investor for something that is growing the company. You are awarded as 2020 most influential women in mid-market merger and acquisition, which is impressive. Thank you. Now, 
one of the quote that I love in one of your interview, and, and I want to touch bases on this, support women and diversity from bottom-up investment in companies led by diverse founders to top-down management decision on board and board activism. Now, can we unpack this a little bit? Sure. What does it mean, bottom-up investment? So as a consumer, I can, quote-unquote, invest in a company, invest in a female-founded company by buying her products. I can get smarter about where I'm spending my money. That's part of it. And then I also think it's, you know, investing in the right people and in as as investor, like helping find board members, helping find employees who are more diverse. So I think it's more than just the physical writing the check. It's the investing in diverse founders. It's in finding diverse people to be employees on your board and your management team. And that's why I think that's that's the bottom up. It's not just the top is like, I'm writing a check. But the bottom is like, who's coming up through the ranks? Who, who else is involved in the organization? So Marcia, what would be your best advice to women entrepreneurs out there? Expand your network by participating. Like podcasts are great, and I love that you're doing this, Christine. I think this is so awesome. There are amazing resources out there, and and we need to take advantage of them. We need to like seek them out. Look at look for organizations that that invest in women. Look for accelerators that invest in women, and and don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. Finding people can help you grow, and finding talented people who who can complement you. You don't have to do everything. You can find people who can support you so that you don't have to take it all, on all the responsibility yourself. Marcia, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn. It's easy to find me on LinkedIn. Marcia Stevens Nelson on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Twitter. Marcia in Motion is my Twitter handle. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad that I got to participate and I am looking forward to listening to some of your other podcasts and some of the other amazing women that I know you're going to be speaking to. Thank you so much for joining me here every week at Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women's entrepreneurs. Head on over to christinashahli.com forward slash her CEO journey to subscribe for this podcast. And don't forget to tell other women entrepreneurs that this podcast is available for free in the podcast apps of their choice. Until next time, and let's continue to grow a business that fuels the life that you want to live.